Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Just a quick, um, if you're new to our church, our church is an Anglican church, and you'll find a lot of interesting things that we do. Um, but one thing that I don't know if we've ever explained, or you may have never even seen before, is when uh, there's the reading of the gospel, and the person says the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll notice some people do this, make a little sign of the cross on their forehead, on their mouth, and on their heart. And if you've seen that and wondered before, it's not a lot of people just getting itchy at the same time in random places. Uh, it's actually uh, representing that it's the gospel is on your mind and on your lips and in your heart. And whenever we make the sign of the cross, we're just doing that to say Jesus is present here. Uh, it's kind of a way of saying that's where Jesus is. And so when we hear the gospel, some people do it. You don't have to in order to say that the gospel is in my mind. My mind is being renewed by it. It's on my lips. I'm going to speak it, and it's in my heart. Cool, huh? You should do it next time. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, make our hearts burn this morning. In that scripture, you said you would ask the Father for the helper. And Lord, we ask you for the helper this morning to lead us into all truth. And all God's people said, amen. amen. During my prayer time this week, God led me to this interesting story about Saul in 1 Samuel 13. Um, and that's where I want to spend most of our time this morning. Essentially, 1 Samuel 13, this story that Elijah read, tells the story about how King Saul gets in a really tight spot, and in that moment, he makes a bad decision, which has grave consequences. But more than just being a random story about an old king, it represents a situation, and it represents a narrative arc that we all experience continually. And in fact, some of us might be in that situation right now. So we have much to learn, and in order to break the story down, uh, I want to ask three questions. First, what was the context that led up to Saul's sin? Second, what was Saul's sin? And third, what was the consequence of Saul's sin? So first, what's the context that led up to Saul's sin? The beginning of 1 Samuel is all about how Israel, if you've ever read this book in the Old Testament, goes from being this scrappy, dysfunctional group of tribes to becoming a kingdom with a king. So at the beginning of the book, they ask for a king and they get one in Saul because he's really tall um, and a couple other reasons besides that, but that's one of the big ones. And as the kingdom of Israel gets stronger, they start annoying and rubbing shoulders with the big bully bad nation next door, the Philistines. And so chapter 13, this chapter that we're reading, opens up with Israel picking a fight with the Philistines, like poking a bully in the eye or like tripping him in the hallway. They kind of get this little quick victory, but as bullies do, he kind of gets back up and gets really mad, and the Philistines are coming after the nation of Israel. And that's where our story starts, with the Philistines furiously coming back at Israel. So I want to go back to that story and look at verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Are you getting that it's a lot of people? The Bible's working really hard to say, yes, yeah, tons of people. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth -Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed 
that people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews even crossed the fords of the Jordan to get to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So the context is that the people are in big trouble. This is a really bad, scary situation. Verse 6 uses the terminology of being hard-pressed. And that's the perfect description. They're in between a rock and a hard place. They're in a vice grip. This is like that famous scene in Star Wars where in the trash dump and the walls are closing in on them and they're freaking out. That's what's happening right now. And so it's no surprise we learn in verse 7 that the people are trembling. They're terrified. Isn't it wild how verse 6 says they resorted to hide themselves in caves, in holes? What kind of holes are these people jumping into? In rocks, in cisterns, which are like water jugs, and in tombs. And remember, for Jews to be in tombs or touch of tombs makes them unclean. So that's not a flyover detail. They're literally jumping into graveyards. And they're scattering. Do you notice how it says they're crossing the Jordan to go back, which is basically like they're hightailing it out of the promised land, out of fear, which God worked so hard to bring them into. So they're, they're in trouble, they're terrified, and they're fleeing. They're scattering everywhere. And in the middle of all this, we learn in verse 8 that King Saul had been given an extremely hard command from the Lord by the prophet Samuel, and that was to wait. (laughs) In the middle of all that, I want you to wait for seven days, we learn. Look at verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So there Saul is, he's waiting, feeling hard-pressed, being squeezed like grapes in a wine press. He's in the trash dump in Star Wars, right? Watching the Philistines close in around him, watching everyone around him freak out and run away and abandon him. And he's looking for Samuel on the horizon, the guy who's going to bring God's game plan, and he's nowhere in sight. Wouldn't you love to just know some of the thoughts Samuel was thinking at that point? or sorry, Saul, I can tell you one of them is, where in the world is Samuel? (laughs) How in the, why am I supposed to just wait in the middle of this while all this is happening? This is ridiculous. Have you ever been in this kind of a situation before? Feeling hard-pressed, feeling like you're in between a rock and a hard place, dealing with objectively scary, bad circumstances, Anxiety multiplying around you, people scattering around you. Things look like they're falling apart, and there you are in the middle of it, waiting, and many times for God knows what. Saul was waiting for Samuel, but he didn't know what Samuel was going to do. We experience these situations like this, the Star Wars wine press crunching moment, and we will experience them again because... For better or worse, God really likes bringing his people sometimes into these situations. He loves breaking point because breaking point is like a greenhouse for faith and for God. It is fertile soil 
for God to work with. So if you remember, we talked a lot about this idea of breaking point in the feeding of the 5,000, how Jesus just stretches his disciples to the absolute limit so that he can do something amazing for a lot of people, but also in their hearts to teach them something. Remember, God leads Israel right up to the Red Sea and does not part the Red Sea until he allows the Egyptian army to come up and pin them. Remember, he tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and does not let up till when? When the knife is in the air. So it's the morning on the seventh day when we get to verse eight. The sun's risen. Samuel was supposed to come on the seventh day and he is not there. People are scattering. Saul's sweating bullets. That's the context. Now what's a sin? Look at verse eight again. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering here and I'm gonna make the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet and greet him. I wonder what he said. And Samuel said, oh, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, their fault, right? And that you did not come within the days appointed, your fault. And that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, bad guy's fault. I said, well, now the Philistines are going to come down to me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself. In other words, I didn't want to do it. I just had to do it. It had to be done. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. The actual thing that Saul did was offer a sacrifice. And that might not seem like a really, really bad sin, because actually normally that's a good thing. Um, But even though it seems insignificant, it's not, because it represents something much deeper, deeper. First of all, it represented a rejection of God's command. This is what Samuel says twice in verses 13 and 14, that Saul did not keep the commandment of the Lord. And in that sense, it didn't really matter what it was. It was a command from God, and Saul broke it. In different contexts, eating a fruit is not that big of a deal, right? It's actually a really good thing. But in the right context, eating a fruit is a pretty big deal, if you get what I'm saying. It was a rejection of God's command. It was a rebellion against his word. It was also a rejection of God's timing. Samuel told Saul to wait seven days, But by the time Saul got to the seventh morning, Saul decided, I've had enough. I'm not going to wait any longer. This is ridiculous. This timing is bonkers. And by offering the sacrifice, Saul is trying to force God to speed up. He's trying to get him to act against his own clock, if that makes any sense. And what's sad is Samuel was on the way. He was keeping his promise. But by the time he showed up, the smoke was already burning from the burnt offering. And to speed God up, we see here that Saul resorted to a ritual to try to manipulate God to get him to do what he wanted. But that's not how God works. God does not respond to the pulling of religious levers. But that's what Saul tries. And because of that, Saul shows that he has more faith in religion 
than he does in God, if that makes sense. He resorts to manipulation instead of trusting the character of God. This reminds me of when Moses is on Mount Sinai and he's taking a long time and the people, Exodus says, are getting impatient and they're all wringing their hands like, we don't like this. Moses has gone way too long. And then they're like, Aaron, do something priestly. Here's some gold. Make us a golden calf. And so Aaron's like, okay. And he does some ritual in the place of patience, basically. Finally, it was a rejection of the role that God had given Saul. Saul was king, but he was not a priest. This was not for him to do. He overstepped the confines of the roles he's been given. We see this a lot in the Old Testament when kings get cocky and they think that they're also in charge of the temple, but they're not. So ultimately, Saul's sacrifice represented a disconnect from God on a heart level which is what Samuel eventually says God is looking for, a man after his own heart. When things get hard-pressed, Saul's actions reveal he does not trust God's character to come through. He resorts to manipulation. He succumbs to his anxiety and he becomes frenetic instead of waiting in patient, confident faith. By letting all the events around him become greater than God's promises and presence, he chooses to walk by sight instead of faith. Have you ever reacted similarly? Similarly, I have, and we're all sinners here, so I'm assuming all of us have. Amen? Times where when the pressure is mounting, it's easier to walk by sight instead of faith. Maybe you even identify with performing some sort of religious ritual, like you do something really Christianly in order to try to get God to act or speed up. Maybe you identify with just fundamentally doubting that God is good and that he's actually going to come back and come through. And so you take things into your own hands. Fine, you just chuck it. Now, what was the consequence for his sin? The immediate one we see is that it cost Saul the throne. He lost his kingdom. Um, This wasn't his only mess up for Saul. He had a lot of other significant strikes after this, but this was his first strike, and it was kind of the beginning of his downfall. But more important, the main consequence of this is that he lost touch with God. By taking things into his own hands and rejecting God's command and timing, he lost touch with the word of God through Samuel, the spirit of God, which had rushed upon him at the beginning of his kingship, and the power of God. By choosing his own way, he lost touch with God's heart, and that is the real tragedy, and that's the real danger in these situations. And what's wild is they actually ended up winning the battle, this one. What follows in chapter 14 is this amazing story about how his son, Jonathan, Chases the Philistines away and saves Israel. But even though the Israelites won, Saul lost in the process. And this is just a clear picture of the profound Jesus truth that you can gain the world and forfeit your soul. It would have been better, genuinely, listen to this, it would have been better for Saul to keep in touch with with God and lose the battle than to win the battle, get out of it, and lose God in the process. 10 times out of 10, that would have been a better option. 
And whatever battle is happening in your life right now, I want you to think about this. Whatever pressures are mounting, whether they're with your family, your kids, your income, your romantic life, there is always a way that you could get out of the tight spot and get what you want, but lose your soul in the process. You don't want to do that. At the end of the day, we really only have the capacity to cling to one ultimate thing. And in fair weather, it might look like you can have a lot of things at the same time. Money, job, faith, hobbies, family, relationships, church. But when the chips are down and when you get in the wine press, stuff gets chucked off the boat pretty easily. Except for that one thing. God loves bringing us into these moments because it's then that it's revealed to us what we are clinging to. And it's then, here's the mercy of it, that God reveals to us the option of faith to cling to him. The tragedy of Saul is that he lets go of his soul and he clings to his life. Is there something that you are clinging to in order to get by that you need to let go of so that you can properly cling to God? Saul's a tragic figure. This is a cautionary tale. We don't want to imitate this. So the point is not go then and do likewise. But it does beg the question, if this is foolishness, according to Samuel, what would have been wise? What would it have looked like for Saul in this moment to forfeit his life and gain his soul? And lucky for us, and lucky for us because the Bible is amazing, we don't have to wonder because 1 Samuel gives us David, the anti-Saul, the man after God's own heart. Like Saul, David spent much of his life, even more than Saul, in caves and literally in holes in the ground, surrounded by enemies who want to destroy him. In fact, the majority of 1 Samuel, this whole first book, David is fleeing or hiding. The vast majority of the book. From Saul, who's trying to kill him, from Philistines who are trying to kill him. He's literally dodging spears. And then you get to 2 Samuel, the second half of David's life, and he has this brief period where he's like, kind of at peace, and then his son rebels against him and chases him back into caves. So the guy spent most of his life fleeing and literally in the Star Wars crunching walls. Like Saul in these situations, David was terrified, physically scared, emotionally shred to pieces, exactly like Saul. But unlike Saul, David did not reject the word and timing of God. Rather, in these caves, he threw everything else away, and he clung with white knuckles to God. He rushed to his promises. He panted like a deer for his presence. He waited for God's power. He trusted in God's timing. He submitted to God's role. And it is from these hard-pressed, breaking-point situations that some of the most powerful and relatable and spiritually significant writings were ever produced in history. And what are those? The Psalms. 
If David's life was like a wine press, the Psalms were the wine. They were the vintage of his suffering. And that wine is some of the greatest in history. It's even the wine that Jesus drank his whole life, even during Jesus' suffering on the cross. He's quoting the words that, J- that David wrote when he was in the middle of these situations. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O oh Lord, save me. Be merciful to me, O oh God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. My soul waits. My soul waits. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Don't you just wish I could just go on forever? (laughs) Isn't it amazing how similar that is to Saul, but how different, right? No less terrified. Nobody's faulting David for being shred to pieces and being anxious. But there's an openness. There's a clinging to God. And there's this waiting, trusting expectation David does not try to rush things because he doubts God's ability to save. Rather, he waits because he trusts God to come through. If you are in one of these situations right now, and I know some of you are, don't give up like Saul. Dig deep like David. And for help, go to the Psalms. You know, there's so many that literally say at the beginning, hey, by the way, this was written when David was in a cave. If you've got a pen and you want to, man, I need some of that right now, I'd recommend as a starting point, Psalms 3, 54, 57, and 142. I'll say that again. 3, 54, 57, and 142. There are many more, but those are some good cave psalms. And finally, if you have sinned and you have messed up in these situations, and you have because you're a sinner and so am I, David also gives us a counterpoint through his repentance to Saul. Saul makes excuses when he's confronted by Samuel. He literally, don't you love it, blamed everyone but himself. You were late. They're all crazy. The Philistines are bad. What was I going to do? I'm the only person sane in this situation, right? When David messes up in a far more horrific way than Saul does in this instance, and his Samuel, who's a guy named Nathan, calls him out, David does the opposite. He just utterly owns it. And he goes to God in his repentance. Listen to how different Psalm 51 is than Saul's excuse. Have mercy, O God, according to your steadfast love. I know my transgressions. My sins ever before me, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You're justified in your words. You're blameless in your judgment. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And what does David not want to lose more than anything else in the world? Cast me not away from your presence. Oh, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He could give everything else up. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God, you know, than be lost from God's presence. So dig deep if you're being hard-pressed. Repent if you've sinned. Genuinely, who knows what would have happened if Saul would have repented? Where is there a situation where someone turns to God in true repentance and is not accepted? But we can't finish there. I know it's hot, and we're doing a lot of Bible stuff, but we can't finish there. We're not simply dealing with abstractions and stories of old kings, divinely inspired and beautiful though they may be. Because for us, there is more here to behold through the lens of the gospel. And now, I want to go back to John 14, and I want you to listen to Jesus' words, and I want you to hear the connections I'm going to quote some other stuff from John in his upper room discourse that's not in your text. So maybe just listen to me read this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will Come again. I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will not see me, but you'll see me. Because I live, you will also live. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. Each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Amen. David was the anti-Saul, and David had many commendable qualities. But as the apostles point out in Acts, David was still a huge sinner, and he died. So he's not our savior. Jesus is the true king, the true shepherd of Israel. And his life was hard-pressed. His soul was truly the one that dwelled in the midst of lions. The enemy approached him, gathered around him, and everyone fled from him. Even his disciples, as it says, the shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered. But Jesus didn't budge. He didn't overstep his calling or his office. He didn't choose another way. He laid down his life for the sheep, like we read last week. And he was crushed to death, like grapes being turned into wine. And the wine produced on the cross was even more precious than David's, right? The vintage of Jesus' suffering brings eternal life and it brings forgiveness for all of us souls 
who freak out and take things into our own, own hands all the time. Hallelujah. And we drink it every Sunday, which is what we're about to do. But it didn't end on the cross for Jesus. This is Eastertide after all. Think about it. Just as Samuel did truly show up on the seventh day, God kept his word. So on the third day, God truly did show up for Jesus in his resurrection. And Jesus walked out of the tomb with both his soul and his life. Jesus let go of his life and clung to his soul, and the world has never been the same. Hey, Jack. So ultimately, when we are hard-pressed, we look to Christ the King. Amen? And we need his example because there's one more connection we need to make in this beautiful passage with all these images of the gospel. And that is that according to what I just read from John 14 in Jesus' words, our whole life is like Saul waiting for God to keep his word and return. We live in the tension of Gilgal, which is the place that Saul was waiting. I wrote a book on this. That would be a great title, right? The Tension of Gilgal. He's sitting there and he's waiting for Samuel to come back. And that is exactly what you and I are doing. Jesus has gone away, but he will return just as he left, just as he promised. So life for the Christian is digging deep into the promises of God, into the presence of God, while we wait for the Lord to return as he said he would. This doesn't mean we won't face hardships or that God won't put us in situations like this because he loves to do that, because he loves to discipline his daughters and his sons because he loves them. He wants them to grow. Jesus himself says, in this world you will have tribulation. But the comforting words are that just as Jesus was not left alone when everyone scattered because the Father was with him. Did you notice how he said that? You all left me, but God didn't leave me. He was with me the whole time. So Jesus says, we are never alone because we have the Spirit, the Advocate, the Helper. Jesus left to go prepare a place for us. He's coming back, and he has not left us as orphans. We're never alone. And so Jesus says twice in John 14, to those in hard situations, brothers and sisters, to those trying to wait faithfully, in a world of anxiety and violence and discord, which is all of us, to those being squeezed like grapes in a wine press, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. In the name of the Father and the Son. Amen.